Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... It's so much more than just a profile picture. At Catholic Singles, our platform offers you many opportunities to get to know the person behind the picture. Sign up today at catholicsingles.com. Welcome to the 10th and final episode of John Allen's The Future Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This podcast series has been an analysis step-by-step of John Allen's 2009 book, The Future Church, in which he discusses 10 different trends that are affecting world society and showing how they're going to impact the Catholic Church. I would like to conclude this analysis by uh, looking at these issues and really asking where we are right now. Um, 10 years after John has written his book, what does the church look like? What crises are we facing? What challenges are we facing as a result of these demographic trends, which are already therefore among us and happening to us right now? And I'd like to do this analysis by uh, looking at it through the lens of the Amazonian Synod, which took place just last month. In many ways, the Amazonian Synod is uh, the working out of the very trends that John was talking about, and therefore, If we have listened to the first nine episodes of this podcast series, and now listen to this tenth, we'll be able to see the Amazonian Synod perhaps make a bit more sense of what's actually happening uh, and why it is a crisis for the church. Now, remember, the word crisis usually has a negative connotation. Uh, We think of a crisis as something which is unsettling, uh, facing change, facing some terrible event. And usually a crisis does actually have that uh, meaning, and it is certainly a challenge But a crisis also has the meaning of it being a turning point, a turning point, as one of the bishops has said, into a new epoch. If you've been following this uh, series that I've been doing, I've mentioned a couple of times that church history can, can be broken down into four different epochs of roughly 500 years each. The first 500 years being the Roman time period, the second 500 years between 500 and 1000 being the uh, Dark Ages when the church went into a, um, a into into a kind of deep sleep, uh, and then from 1000 to 1500, the flourishing of Christendom, and 1500 to 2000 being the age of revolution and reform. And now we're actually m- moving into a new epoch, a new time, which is therefore a crisis, a turning point, a challenge for the church and for society. So I would like to do this analysis of John Allen's book and the Amazonian Synod uh, under five different categories demographics, evangelization, enculturation, charismatic renewal, and church leadership. Again, there's going to be five different sections of this analysis, uh, which is demographics, evangelization, enculturation, charismatic renewal, and church leadership. These are the ones that I think are most important coming out of John's book to help us to understand the Catholic Church, where it is now, uh, and Uh, where it may be going in the 21st century. And if I talk about it in terms of crisis, uh, I do mean there is a crisis. Uh, As we'll see as we go on, uh, there are some real tests and challenges which we're facing, uh, which we really need the Holy Spirit and the strength of um, our faith to be able to move through positively into the future. So the first of these five categories is demographics. John Allen's basic bottom line is this, that the Populations in Europe, 
in North America, uh, the wealthy North, are shrinking. They're getting older. Our birth rate is dropping, and we're not actually at even at replacement levels. In the face of this, the population in the global South, Latin America, Africa, uh, India, and also, by extension, to the Far East, is growing, and it's young. Uh, They are the ones who are already in a majority in the Christian church and the Catholic church worldwide. To put it very simply and in blunt terms, uh, the white people who are rich and well-established in the North are shrinking in numbers, we're getting older, and we are will therefore shrink in our influence. Those who are in the South are young, are energetic, are enthusiastic, and they are also already in the church in the majority. By 2050, the entire human population will be going into decline unless there is a turnaround in the falling birth rates. For the rest of this century, therefore, the church in the South, the Africans, the Indians, the Latin Americans, and by extension to the Philippines and the Far East, are the growth, they are the growth point. They are the ones who will eventually take over. Last month, we went on a diocesan retreat in my diocese here in Charleston, South Carolina. And as we looked around uh, all of the priests who were together on retreat, I would say half of us now already are from the developing world. Among the vast majority, the young ones were not of European descent. They were from India, Africa, Latin America, Philippines, and they're already here. Now, if you have a Vietnamese or a Filipino or a uh, a Colombian uh, priest in your diocese, if you have an African or an Indian uh, in your parish, you may uh, be looking at them and saying, oh, well, the bishop is obviously using these fellows to keep the show on the road, and before long, we will have some other uh, priests who are like us, who are Americans, who are white, uh, who will be able to take their place, and we'll have another priest, uh, another uh, English-speaking priest again. Uh, You must not imagine that that will be the case. In fact, the number of priests from the developing world will probably continue to grow, And the number of priests who are from North America and Europe uh, who speak English will continue to shrink. This is the way the demographics are going. And therefore, uh, the demographics will influence the rest of the church. That is to say, they are already in the majority. And the Christians, the Catholics from the developing world, will not only be here, they will continue to be in positions of leadership. Uh, They will eventually um, become our bishops as well as our priests, and they will influence the church accordingly, and their culture will influence the church accordingly. This is a fact which a lot of us might be uncomfortable with. We might want things to be the way they've always been. We might want to have a priest from our culture who speaks our language uh, and belongs to our set, but the way things are going, that will increasingly be unlikely. The demographic shift, of course, is uh, exacerbated by increased mobility in the world. We like to get on a plane and go somewhere exotic for vacation. Other people like to get on a plane and come here uh, and join us and uh, belong to the, to the United States or belong to Europe, uh, where they will have a better way of life. And so this immigration will continue, and the strains and stresses that come from these demographic shifts will continue, and they will continue to impact the church. 
Therefore, as the 21st century continues to unfold, uh, we will be, be dealing more and more with how we in the West uh, can accept and welcome the increasing number of priests and people from the developing world as the makeup and the complexion of our church continues to shift. And the Amazonian Synod was a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Pope Francis is the first non-European pope. This demographic shift is going to mean that the church will be less Eurocentric. Now, Pope Francis's parents were Italian, and so he has uh, European roots in his ancestry uh, and in his own background, but the next pope is very likely to have been born in the Philippines or in India, very likely to have been born in Sri Lanka or Madagascar or Africa, very likely to have been born uh, of indigenous parents from the Amazon or Central America. This next pope may very well not have European roots at all. And the demographic shift is therefore illustrated by the Amazonian Synod because uh, the Amazonian Synod was trying to make us look at what it is like to be a Catholic in the Amazon. What is it like to be a Catholic and your culture is uh, that of, a, of an Amazonian tribe? And I think the fathers of the um, Amazonian Synod, those who are behind the Amazonian Synod, were trying to give the Western Church a wake-up call and say, look, these people are your Catholic brothers and sisters. The world is changing. The majority of Catholics are already in the Amazon, in the big cities of Brazil and Argentina and Bolivia and Chile. Uh, they are already in the big cities of Africa, the burgeoning cities of India and the Philippines. These are the majority of Catholics. And what are you going to do about it? Because this is the future. And the Amazonian Synod was therefore an attempt, I think, by the organizers to try to get Catholics worldwide, by using the most extreme example of indigenous people from the Amazon, to use uh, those people and to use that situation to try to get all of us to say, what is the Catholic Church in the 21st century going to look like? Now, when we're looking at those demographics, a lot of us want to go back and uh, put our head in the sand and return to some kind of a nostalgic Catholicism from the past that seems attractive to us and beautiful to us, but I'm not sure increasingly that that is really the answer and whether that's really going to work. Which brings me to the next category of the five, which is evangelization. And I would like to ask, as a former evangelical, what is evangelization? This word is a buzzword. Uh, it was littered all through the documents from the Amazonian Synod, uh, in which the fathers of the Amazonian Synod kept talking about evangelization, evangelization, evangelization. Yeah, but what is evangelization? From the documents of the Amazon Synod, we would uh, draw the conclusion that, uh, that evangelization consists of accompanying people, getting next to people, sharing their poverty, sharing their joys, sharing their sorrows, uh, and fighting for peace and justice, uh, and that is what evangelization consists of. But of course, this idea of evangelization is based on a culture where everybody is Catholic. The Pope comes from Argentina, where everybody arguably is Catholic. And in a Catholic culture, a Catholic country, evangelization probably does mean getting next to people, encouraging them to come back to church, finding out what is keeping them from the Lord, and drawing them back. But of course, in many parts of the world, where I live in South Carolina, where Catholics are only less than 5% of the population, evangelization means something quite different. And in the United States and Europe, where increasingly people are atheistic or secular through and through, evangelization doesn't mean encouraging Catholics to come back to church or trying to help them overcome their marriage difficulties so that they can come to communion again. 
evangelization is is baseline evangelization, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to a needy people who've never heard the news, or if they've heard the news, have completely misunderstood it and need to have it explained again in a powerful, dynamic, and attractive way. Evangelization, then, is a buzzword which is all through the Amazonian Synod. I'm not sure a lot of Catholics really understand what evangelization is. As a former evangelical, I get rather frustrated, and I ask myself, have these people never read the gospel? Have they never read the New Testament? Have they never understood that evangelization is Jesus Christ saying, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Evangelization is not just accompanying people and getting next to people and sharing their culture. It's evangelization is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that false evangelization narrative going out there? I believe it's because an awful lot of the clergy and the theologians in the Catholic Church today, like an awful lot of the Protestants, are actually universalists or semi-universalists. They don't baptize people. They don't call for conversion. They don't call for a person repenting of their sins and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ to be, in order that they might be saved and delivered from hell. Because, to be perfectly honest, an awful lot of them don't actually believe in hell. They don't actually believe in damnation. They believe that Jesus died to save everybody, and therefore everybody is saved. And all that, if that's the case, then of course evangelization does consist of just getting next to people, encouraging them to be more spiritual and be kinder to one another. It's not about the salvation of their souls. If you're a universalist, you believe they're already saved. Therefore, you do not need to call them to repentance and salvation in the, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or else they will go to hell. No, you've got over that long ago, and you see that actually everybody is saved. And the gospel and evangelization, therefore, becomes simply trying to share that good news with everybody else and saying to them, you are already saved, you are already delivered from your sins, now we just have to learn to live that way. Well, this is a big clash in the Catholic Church. What does evangelization really mean? And I believe that as we move into the 21st century, we have a choice of two ways with evangelization. Either we continue down this universalist idea of evangelization, where really we just tell people that they're already saved, which I believe is a total dead end, or we actually face the music, wake up, smell the coffee, and realize that uh, basic evangelization is needed, and that's the, the call of every baptized person, and that's the message of uh, that the, the, the we priests have to share. That's the message that all of us have to share in every means possible to share the good news of Jesus Christ and his, his saving work for us, but also share the good news that the way we access that is through repentance and faith and accepting the Lord Jesus with our whole heart and turning to him for the fullness of the faith in the Catholic Church. Now, the reason this is so important is because the universalist message uh, of evangelization, just getting next to people, eventually calls for a total failure of the church and no need for the church at all. Just ask yourself a simple question, common sense question, why, if everybody's already saved, why have the church at all? If everybody's already saved and we're all moving blithely to this point where we will all go to heaven one day, then why have the sacraments? Why have the church? Why have the gospel? Why have the saving message? You see, people aren't stupid. They soon realize that if everybody's going to be saved, why do they need to get up and go to church on Sunday? If everybody's going to be saved, why do they have to follow this 2,000-year-old religion, uh, which focuses on a man who, uh, a criminal who was killed 2,000 years ago? And of course, 
without a clear message of evangelization, they're absolutely right. If everybody's going to be saved, why bother with the whole Christian, the whole Catholic thing? We're putting ourselves out of business. There'll be no need for the church, no need for evangelization, no need for the sacraments. And of course, some of the radicals uh, actually believe that. They believe that the church's business is to put itself out of business. Which brings me to the third category, which is enculturation. In the Amazon Synod, the uh, organizers brought us face-to-face with the question of enculturation. And as we face the demographic shift, as we face the integration of other peoples and other cultures, we therefore are looking at the question of enculturation. And enculturation is the, the, the tricky business of how do we share the Christian gospel, how do we share the Catholic faith with people of other cultures where uh, they don't, don't have the Western background of philosophy, theology, art, culture, and so forth that we have. You see, we share a culture in which Christianity was found its seedbed, found its origins, uh, in a culture which goes right back not only to through um, uh, Christendom in Europe, but also right back, of course, to the Roman time period and then to the Greek time period and to the classics of antiquity and, of course, to the Hebrew nation who were part of that uh, ancient world. That is where Christianity came from. How does Christianity mix and fit in with a culture in China or Vietnam or the Philippines or India? or Africa, or the Amazon, where for uh, generations and generations, for eons, the culture was not Christian. It was not classical. It was not Western. It was something else. How does Christianity fit into those cultures? What needs to change for Christianity to fit into those cultures? And how do those cultures need to change to adapt and accept Christianity? This has always been the great challenge for missionaries. This has always been the great challenge as they go out and confront different cultures and therefore have to preach the gospel to those different cultures and adapt the gospel to that culture, but also expect that culture to adapt to the Christian gospel, especially where that culture may be pagan, it may be following a false philosophy, a false theology, uh, and actually be worshiping demons, perhaps, rather than uh, the true God. Enculturation is therefore a problem for missionaries that were going from the West over to other countries, but it's now also a problem in reverse. How do Catholics from Africa, the Philippines, Vietnam, Uh, Central America, Latin America, how do they uh, adapt to enculturation when they're coming to North America, to Canada, to Western Europe? How do they adapt to our culture, which is so different? And therefore, this challenge of cultures is something which uh, we're facing in the 21st century, and I consider to be the, the biggest challenge for our church. There are different pathways to move forward, and indeed, that was the path, the name that was given to the Amazonian Synod, New Pathways for the Church. What are those new pathways? How does a Christianity and a Catholicism emerge from this mix of cultures, emerge in the 21st century as something for a global humanity and a global... This is where I think we face a huge problem and a huge difficulty. One of the answers for this enculturation problem is for Christianity to be merged, Catholicism to be merged with a growing global human culture. And that growing global human culture is basically humanistic, and it's secular, uh, and it's political, and it's involved with ecology, with the ecology movement. And it looks like this. 
This growing global human culture is one which is essentially relativistic and syncretistic. It's one uh, which, in which there is no set dogma. Instead, everyone can believe what they want to believe because that will help us all to be a unified human race all around the world. There will be one, uh, there will be a spirituality for all, but there will not be dogma because dogma and doctrine is divisive. Indeed, when it comes to morals as well, that will become relativistic. So therefore, this growing global humanity, this new culture that is emerging in the 21st century will be values free. We will simply say toleration is the greatest value. All of us must tolerate one another's different customs and different moralities. They will say, for instance, in Africa, there is polygamy. Men can have more than one wife. In Islam, they can have more than one wife. Mormons might come back again and say, well, we'd like to resurrect that aspect of our religion too. The lesbian and gay and trans movement will also be saying, well, this is our sexuality. Uh, and other cultures, when it comes to other moral questions, will simply say, this is our morality. This is what works for us. A utilitarian approach will bring us all together and will be unified in a, in a a values-free human morality in which we all recognize that the highest goal is to be kind to one another and to be tolerant about everything else. When it comes to doctrine, whatever you believe is great. Your truth, you have your truth, I have my truth. We're all going up the same mountain, but by different paths. And therefore, we help one another and try to understand one another. Now, there are trends within Catholicism, of course, which are trying to fit in with this kind of World Council of Churches or United Nations spirituality or culture. And I believe, of course, that this is a huge mistake. A huge mistake because the uniqueness of Christianity and the uniqueness and saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ will be lost in this great big tapioca pudding of religion which is will be emerging. I should point out, of course, that this um, vague kind of religiosity and spirituality is, is perfect a perfect fit for paganism because paganism is a spirituality more than it's a religion. Paganism does not have a set doctrine. It does not have a set moral code. Instead, it's people practicing a form of spirituality spirituality, to get in touch with the gods or to get in touch with their own spirituality or to ask the gods for certain things, but it's not linked with morality and it's not linked with dogma. Therefore, this emerging secular, unified, humanistic, global religion will essentially be a modern form of paganism. It'll be what I call neo-paganism, and it'll be the death of Christianity. And those of us who are true Catholics and true Christians will have to stand up against it and say, as they did in the early church, paganism is not Catholicism. Paganism is the enemy of Catholicism. And I don't care whether it's ancient paganism or neo-paganism, it will be something that all of us who are true Catholics will need to stand up against. Now, what will the Catholic Church look like in the face of this, uh, I believe, growing uh, global threat of neo-paganism? I believe uh, it will be increasingly dogmatic, it will be increasingly clear about the moral standards of Christians, and it will be increasingly clear in both of these ways, not theoretically, just through teaching with a catechism and a rule book, but it will actually uh, be very clear about these things as people come to live this out in the world. And that this enculturation will actually be a positive way in which the new Christianity, the new Catholicism for the 21st century, is lived out in a positive, um, uh, visible way by small communities uh, filled with the Holy Spirit who are living out the Christian gospel in a radical way in the midst of what I believe will be a growing upsurge 
of neo-pagan, global neo-paganism, which brings me to the fourth category in my analysis, which is the charismatic renewal. Remember, John Allen points out that huge numbers of Christians globally now are either charismatics, Pentecostals, or influenced heavily by the charismatic Pentecostal movement. Huge numbers of Catholics in, in Latin America, for instance, are leaving the Catholic Church and going to the Pentecostal churches, going to the charismatic churches, and going to Catholic churches influenced by the charismatic movement. I personally believe that this spirit-filled movement will combine with what John Allen called evangelical Catholicism, which is a more traditional approach to liturgy, uh, and that these two movements together will converge, and we will see a, a new orthodoxy, a new combination of the enthusiasm, the energy, and the joy uh, and the, of the spirit-filled charismatic movement combined with uh, a liturgical conservatism, if you like, a, a liturgical reverence and solemnity to worship, and that the two will actually fit together in a beautiful way. Uh, so that we have something which might be called evangelical uh, charismatic Catholicism, uh, a religion which is very faithful to uh, what we saw in the first century, spirit-filled and yet liturgical with extremely high values when it comes to, to, to morals, especially in the areas of sexuality and family. And that the charismatic renewal will actually be the force which enlivens uh, that and brings uh, a traditional form of Catholic worship to combine with the, the intellectual prowess of the evangelicals so that this new emerging Orthodox Catholicism will be global, just like the uh, neo-paganism is global, but it will also be a new face of Catholicism, uh, which is filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, which has intellectual integrity of the evangelicals and has the uh, liturgical solemnity and beauty of traditionalist Catholics. And this is what needs to come together to be the new face of Catholicism in the 21st century. Now, this is something which will emerge naturally from the grassroots. It's not something which can be put together as a movement, but the reason I believe that this is going to happen is because when I look around the church in America and the church in uh, Latin America and the church around the world, this is exactly what I see emerging at a grassroots level. At the grassroots level, we're finding a good number of converts from evangelicalism who understand the Pentecostal, the good things of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, and who are also traditional in their worship, and that this uh, new uh, synthesis will come together at a grassroots level. Uh, it will not be organized officially. It will not be run by the bishops. It will not be run by the church as such. Instead, it will be a new uh, movement cycling up from below in Africa, in Latin America, and I believe also in North America and in Europe. And that this will begin very small. It'll begin as a nucleus, but it will continue to grow through the 21st century uh, in a powerful and an exciting way. That's why when I say that we're facing a new epoch or we're facing a new uh, age of the church, uh, I believe that it is not actually something to be worried about. I'm optimistic. I think there are certainly some terrible um, threats. There are some terrible challenges we're facing, but that things like the Amazon Synod are going to help us to see these things clearly. We saw in the, in the Amazonian Synod an emergence of exactly this um, what I call global neo-paganism. Uh, we saw documents which could have been drafted by the United Nations Ecology Committee. We saw documents which had nothing to do with the Christian faith, nothing to do with the preaching of the gospel, nothing to do with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, nothing to do with the powerful infilling of the Holy Spirit. But instead, we saw documents and we saw activities which are a perfect example of what I call the, glo the, the global neo-paganism. Uh, and because we were able to see it clearly, 
And the Pachamama debate was just one illustration of what I'm talking about. Now, because we're able to see it clearly, we are also able to uh, stand up against it. But we stand up against it not by fighting it and, and really not really by taking the idols and throwing them in the Tiber River, although that was certainly a sign of contradiction. Um, but really by standing up and positively building these small communities in our parishes, in our schools, uh, in our dioceses, uh, and through new uh, uh, apostolates, to present this new global Orthodox Catholicism, Evangelical Catholic Catholicism to the world as a, as a, as a viable and strong alternative. This brings me to the fifth uh, category, uh, and that is leadership, the leadership of the church. We should know by now that we are not going to find the leadership for this from our bishops, and by our, from our priests, by our, from our theologians, from our cardinals, from our archbishops. There will be some priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, maybe even a pope, who lead the charge in the development and the growth of evangelical charismatic Catholicism. But we can't rely on them because they have been riddled through, especially in North America and Europe, for 50 or 60 years with bogus, uh, faulty, heretical theology. Many of them do not actually believe uh, the Orthodox historic Catholic faith. They believe some other mishmash of positive thinking and group therapy and political correctness. Instead, we need to look to the lay people to do what they're already doing, to roll up their sleeves and do what they can do with what they have where they are. All across America, I see all sorts of apostolates, publishing houses, blogs, newspapers, Social people active on social media, people starting men's groups and women's groups, uh, people starting conferences and 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 uh, being blessed in their parish by starting new musical groups, new outreaches to the needy, and all sorts of things which are starting all over America, and they're run by the lay people. They're not run by the academics and the theologians and the bishops and the archbishops and the priests and the religious. They're being run by lay people, which is exactly what the Second Vatican Council called for. They're being run by lay people who are enthusiastic who are well-educated, uh, who are energetic, and making huge sacrifices in order to run these apostolates and lift the church and bring the church into the 21st century, uh, into a century uh, and centuries beyond, which I think is going to be, see, the completion of the Great Commission. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And after that, he would return. And I believe that we are nearing the time of the completion of the Great Commission. And that this call for uh, evangelical charismatic Catholicism from, to rise up from a grassroots level is what the church will see uh, in the 21st century. I can't make this happen. I hope it happens. I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen uh, on a global scale. But I can make it happen where I work within my family, within my school, uh, within my parish, within my diocese, to be faithful to the historic gospel and to live it out and to present it in a fresh way, a way which will take us into the future. I am not pessimistic about the, the, the future of the Catholic Church. I am not pessimistic about the, in the crisis we are in the middle of. I am not worried about it at all, because I know that Christ is with his church, the Holy Spirit is with his church, and that we are moving into an exciting epoch, one in which we have to think outside the box, one in which we can't just revert and, and hide ourselves in a sort of traditionalist fantasy world, uh, one in which we cannot sort of just bolt down and run to our own spirituality or our own little religious comfort zone, but one in which we need to live the gospel in a true and a powerful way, full of joy and full of optimism, knowing that the Holy Spirit is with us and knowing that Christ will never forsake his church. Well, thank you for listening to uh, this final episode of The Future Church. 
I hope if you would like to learn more about church history, that you might like to listen to my 23-part series, Triumphs and Tragedies. That's available on my blog, DwightLongenecker.com. That's DwightLongenecker.com. It's basically one podcast uh, for each century in the Catholic Church. When you look at the history of the Catholic Church, you'll be able to understand more fully and clearly where the Holy Spirit has brought us now, uh, why the Church has faced numerous crises in the past, and come through them with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If you can support my blog at DwightLongenecker.com, I encourage you to do so. You'll find my blog post there. You can browse my books. You can be in touch. Invite me for a speaking engagement at your parish or your conference if you like, and also by being a donor subscriber if you're able to. Thank you again for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.